0: as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the leaders, and uh, we're working through our series, going through the book of Ephesians. We're in the middle of a kind of a mini-series right now looking at, at how we change, how, how we actually go through the process of engaging genuine, heart-level, transforming, and long-term change. All right, Uh, over the last three weeks, we've been talking about resolutions. That's kind of how we started out at the beginning of the year, talking about how we all make resolutions, we all break resolutions, um, and and why resolutions uh, are bad when they're done the wrong way and why they can be good when they're done in the right way. Um, There's a biblical word for resolutions. It's called repentance. Now, repentance is not an incredibly popular word. Um, most people, when they hear the word repentance, um, think of very sour faced, um, often um, superior people um, calling them out. For many, it's an ugly word because honestly, stupid people have used it like a club against people that they disagree with or don't like, people they want to condemn and they want to feel condemned. Um, many don't like it because it's associated to them with, with feelings of shame and um, uh, condemnation. Well, here's the deal, you guys. The, the biblical word repentance is a beautiful word, and it's a beautiful concept. It is not something that's ugly. The bottom line is it's been widely misunderstood and widely misrepresented. Um, I was reading in a, a leadership book, and it was talking about um, specific types of behaviors that can hinder um, people and organizations. And in describing these behaviors, the illustration was given of elephants. And I've used this illustration before. It's, it's a pretty powerful one. The idea is that, that when elephants are small, you train them to know their limitations and, um, and, and this is not a pleasant thing. I don't recommend you look it up because it's, it's not nice the way they do it. But essentially what they do is, is they train an elephant not to pull it, the stake out of the ground. They stake it to the ground. And when it's small, um, it doesn't have the power to pull out the stake. And, and so when it doesn't have the power to pull out the stake, it actually develops um, learned helplessness. It is it's a condition in which the elephant is convinced it simply can't do it. And later, when it is much more powerful and, in fact, able to pull the stake out of the ground, it simply doesn't um, because it has learned to accept its helplessness, and that rope keeps it tethered. I love the illustration because the reality is we all have ropes connected to us. We all have behaviors that we'd like to change. We just think we can't. There are things about ourselves that we would like to see matured or developed or grown or changed. And we can't. That's at least how we look at it. And we don't have just one rope, do we? We've got a bunch, right? We've got all kinds of ropes. We've got ropes we don't even know about yet, right? They're ropes that are hindering our ability to move in the direction we want to go, hindering our ability to become the people God has created us to be. Um, and, and yet we, we don't even notice them because we've come to so accept them that we don't even see them. The biblical word repentance is the concept that God is going to bless us with the ability to see and break free from the things that tie us down, the things that hinder us, the things that are are limiting our ability to become the people God has created us to be. Repentance is God's gracious gift of change. It is not only possible. Um, it is um, guaranteed, honestly, in the gospel. Repentance is a gift from God. So we want to talk a little bit about repentance. I don't know if you guys watched um, the movie Lord of the Rings. Uh, I pretty much watch it at least once a year. I know it's, it's like this marathon. Um, to watch all three back-to-back is... is long, but incredibly enjoyable. Um, and, uh, and this year, um, I, I went out and I found a great deal. I got all three movies for 18 bucks, Blu-ray. I was like, yes. People are like, did you get the extended edition? I'm like, no. Uh, it's long enough as it is, right? Uh, but there's a scene in this series where there's a king named Theoden who is um, the king of kind of the horse people sort of a deal, and he's bewitched. He is under this, this spell, and what they've done visually is pretty compelling with this character. He has these cloudy eyes, long, tangled, nasty hair, and his, his skin is sallow, and his fingernails are long and, and nasty, and, and um, you can what they've done is visually represented the fact that, that, that his thinking is cloudy, that he is ensnared and entrapped. He is enslaved, right? Um, and, and then Gandalf comes in, and um, Gandalf basically rebukes the, uh, um, the bewitchment, and, and you actually see his eyes clear, and you see the skin, the color return to his skin, and the energy return to his face. That is, for me, a very graphic... Um, but powerful visual image of what repentance does for us. Repentance clears our eyes, it restores our energy, it gives us back our health, it allows us to become who we know we really are in Christ. It allows us to become who God has called us to be in Christ. Because outside of Christ, in our own power, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to our sin, we're enslaved to our deceitful desires, we're enslaved to um, an unbiblical and unhealthy view of ourselves, and we are blinded by it. Repentance is the gift that gives us the freedom to become truly who we are. The Greek word for repentance is is a wonderfully nuanced word completely oversimplified by many teachers today. Um, most of the time when you hear uh, a biblical teacher talking about repentance, they talk about this idea of just doing a 180, right? You just stop doing your sin and you just turn, right? This idea of you just turn and then you go the other direction. You stop doing the bad thing and, and um, uh, it, it's almost always defined purely behaviorally. Uh, the word is metanoia. That's the Greek word and it literally means a change of the mind but it's more than just a change of the mind. It's talking about um, this very deep change that occurs in an individual. And it begins in the mind, and it works out in the life through the behavior. It is a gift of transformation, right? It's not simply a matter of conformity. It's not simply a matter of, okay, I'm going to stop doing the bad thing, and I'm going to start doing the right thing. It is a change that takes place at our deepest level. And because we have a change in how we think and how we believe and how we see the world and how we see ourselves, it changes the way we live our lives, the way we behave. And it is the secret of true, lasting, transforming change. Biblical repentance is the only pathway to genuine, lifelong, lasting, transformed change. And it all starts... With believing the gospel. It all starts with believing the gospel. Um, God's blessings have been given to us in the gospel, and, um, and honestly, that's why we've spent so much time talking about it. Over the last two weeks, we've really pounded this. We've spent a lot of time exploring this idea that we're called to believe the gospel and keep believing the gospel, because it's foundational to any true life change. Now, the gospel calls us to approach our life, and that's kind of what we've been looking at over the last couple weeks, to approach our life very differently than we did before we believed it, right? We're not supposed to keep living our lives as believers as if we were unbelievers. Um, we're no longer to, to according to, to 417, we're no longer to walk through life as the Gentiles, right? And, and that's not a separatist thing where, of course, you're better than them. Don't be like them. What it's saying is <laughs> you were a Gentile, an unbeliever. Don't keep walking through life as someone who's separated from God. Don't keep making life choices and decisions and, and, and living as if you were not a child of God. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God. Kind of a crazy phrase. We're not going to unpack that fully. But, but notice the next phrase, as beloved children. You're no longer aliens separated from God. You're children of God. You're sons and daughters of God. You are in the covenant family of God, beloved children. And you're supposed to put off the old man, that old identity of who you were before you were in Christ, with all of its limitations, with all of its faults, with, with all of its sin, with all of its failure. Put that off. That's not who you are anymore. You are to put on your new identity, which is who you are in Christ, who God says you are, who he's declared you to be because of the work of Christ. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are holy and righteous in Christ. You are the glory of God. That's who he says you are, and that's who he's making you to be. So don't go through life like you're an orphan because you're a child of God. And verse 23 told us that that the only way for us to do this was to renew our minds. That was the key to putting off the old man and putting on the new man. We have to continually renew our minds in the gospel. We have to continually take ourselves back to the gospel and remind ourselves who we are in Christ. We have to get good at identifying the lies we believe about ourselves, about God, about the world, and exposing those lies in the, the light of the truth of the gospel, right? And we talked about last week this gospel prayer. It's a four-part prayer And don't worry, we're going to review it a little bit later this morning if you don't remember it, but it's a four-part prayer that I encourage you to pray every day, that that you would remind yourself of the central truths of the gospel, not only to believe the gospel as if it were a one-time transaction, but to keep believing the gospel, because the scripture tells us that we are to walk in faith, not simply um, exercise faith as a one-time thing, right? So we we need to believe the gospel and keep believing the gospel. That's foundational. That's where it starts. That's why we've spent so much time unpacking that truth. The next thing, honestly, is not just to believe the gospel, but to confess the gospel. Now, that word confess is loaded, right? Um, When we talk about confession, it's it's like another word like confession repentance. It just is kind of one of those dark words we don't like. Confession usually has to do with hidden crime, right? You talk about having to confess. It usually means that you've had something hidden or, or a sin or a crime or a shame, and, and you have to come out with it, right? The word confess literally means to proclaim a truth, right? If you confess something, all you're simply saying is that this thing is true, right? It's, it's to proclaim. That's a, a synonym for it, to proclaim it, to say that it's true. Now, repentance requires us to confess the truth, to speak the truth and agree with it. And, and that's kind of what we talked about in that, that whole idea of, when I talked about preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? We have to continually remind ourselves of the gospel, preaching it to ourselves and provoking our heart to keep believing um, who God is and what he's done, right? Um, what that is, we are, we are confessing the truth of the gospel to our own hearts to root ourselves in God's love and his affirmation of us, right? And, and that is a, a very personal but very important part of it. But confession can't simply be private. It can't simply be personal. Confession needs to um, go beyond simply telling the truth to ourselves and move on to telling the truth to others. And this is an integral part to entering into biblical Repentance. We have to develop habits of confession. First of all, we have to develop habits of confession to God. We have to um, keep short accounts with God. Learn to confess regularly to God. First John one 9 says this. It's on the screen. When we confess our sins, He that is God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, First John is a letter written to believers. This is not a verse telling you how to become a believer. This is telling you as a believer how to walk in the reality of your faith. Believer, when you confess your sins, when you come to God and you simply speak the truth to him, right? Adam and Eve, uh, when they sinned in the garden, what's the first thing they did? You guys remember? They went and hid in the bushes, right? They, they, <laughs> their first impulse was not to speak the truth. Their first impulse was not to confess. Their first impulse was to hide, right? It's kind of idiotic, right? God comes into the garden. Oh, where are you guys, right? It's like when you come into the living room and and, and your toddler is hiding behind the curtains, right? You can see the feet sticking out. You know exactly where they are, right? God wasn't asking because he didn't know. He was asking because he was inviting them to honesty, right? And then when they come out, um, he asks them more questions. Why is God asking them questions? Because he doesn't know, No, because he's inviting them to confession. He's inviting them to speak the truth. He's inviting them to come out of hiding. Confession to God is something that that we need to develop a regular habit of doing. We need to confess our sins to God. When we fall short, when we um, know that there's something that is shameful and we desperately want to hide it, um, we want to confess it. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Here's the deal, you guys. Confession isn't what triggers God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is what triggers our confession. Does that make sense? As believers, we don't confess our sins to be forgiven. We're already forgiven because of the work of Christ. The work of Christ is what gives us the courage to confess. The work of Christ is what gives us the courage to stop hiding, stop pretending, stop working and simply be honest, right? He's saying, confess your sins to God, you guys. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You will not be rejected. You will not be condemned. And the reason is because Jesus was already condemned for you. When when it says that God is faithful and that he's just, That's pointing to the cross. Who is God faithful to? He's faithful to you, but you know what he's really talking about here? He's faithful to the work of Christ. He judged Christ in your place. Christ was your substitute in judgment. He bore the full weight of your condemnation so that you might be forgiven. He died the death you deserve to die, and he rose again a new life so that you might be blessed. He is faithful to honor Christ. He is faithful to honor the sacrifice of Christ. So when we come... As a sinner confessing our sins, he's faithful to the work of Christ. And he is just to forgive us. You know why? Because as a just judge, our sin has already been judged in Christ. He will not judge us in condemnation because Christ took our place in condemnation. The work of Christ, when we confess our sins, we're not not confessing to be forgiven. We're confessing because we already are. And that gives us the courage to come into the presence of God and experience the blessing of our forgiveness. Do you catch that? A lot of us are walking through life, honestly, uh, with a, a, a pardon, and we're not experiencing the benefit of it because we haven't let go of the condemnation that's no longer ours. We keep walking in the shame. We keep walking under the cloud of guilt. We keep walking in separation from the benefit of our forgiveness, even though we have it in Christ. This is an invitation to experience the fullness of the blessing of your forgiveness. When we confess our sin, he is is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The end of that verse has given me more comfort than many... I don't even know how many other... I mean, this is... I can't tell you how many times I personally in my walk with Christ have just been incredibly frustrated with myself. I don't know if you can relate with that. I mean, I'm just sick of myself. Um, I'm sick of my attitude. I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of my short-sightedness. I'm tired of struggling. I am failing. Um, Even when I'm succeeding, I'm failing. I mean, it's that sense of just like, I am overwhelmed with my own idiocy, right? But to come into the presence of God and to claim the promise, I am both forgiven and I am cleansed. And to grab hold of that and to say, because Christ bore my shame, I am cleansed. Because he stepped into my filth, I am cleansed. Because he became sin for me, I am the righteousness of God in him. I am cleansed. When we confess our sins to God, it's not so that we can be forgiven by God. It's so that we can experience the benefit of our forgiveness in Christ and that empowers us. Do you get that? It it, it gives you strength, right? A lot of us are undercut in our strength in our testimony for Christ and our strength to move forward and who God has called us to be because that that voice of condemnation, it's one of those hidden ropes that just limits us, that holds us. And and you guys, the, the only reason the rope holds us is because we give it power by not being honest with God and not confessing our sin. We need to be quick to confess our sin. We need to, to um, stop hiding. Right? Some of you, um, you'll, you'll sin, and, or you'll do something, you know, and, and you know it was wrong, and, and what do you do? Like You'll go beat yourself up for a little while. You'll, you'll just berate yourself for a little while. You, you will um, um, put a guilt trip on yourself for a little while, and after you've done that for a little while, then it's like, okay, now I can go to God and confess my sin. What are you doing there? You realize what you're doing? You're actually trying to do the work of Christ. You're trying to pay a price you can't pay. And that is, in fact, sin. It's pride. What you're saying is that you actually have the ability to pay for your own sin. Well, I let myself down. I fell short of my standard. I better beat myself up for a little while, and then I'll feel better about myself. When I feel better about myself, then I can reapproach God. You're actually waiting until you can reapproach God in your pride. You need to come in the absolute brokenness. You need to, when we get the gospel, we are quick to run to God in our sin. When we get the gospel, the humility of the gospel, that Christ has paid the full price, even when we feel most shameful, that is when we are most drawn into the presence of God, to be reclothed in our awareness of our righteousness in Christ. So we need to develop habits of quick confession to God, right? But we also need to develop habits of confession to others. So we need to confess the truth to our own hearts. We need to confess our sins um, to God so that we can be, uh, come back into the full blessing of our awareness of our forgiveness and our cleansing and righteousness. But we also need to develop habits of confession to others. James 5.16 says this, verses on your screen. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, that you may be restored, that you may be made whole, that you may be once again sound, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, there's two applications here. The first is that we need to confess our sins when we sin against people, right? We always have to confess our sin to God. You know why? Because sin is always an offense against God. Every sin is an offense against God because you were created in the image of God. And every time you sin, even if you're sitting at home in the privacy of your own home, looking at a computer screen, a lot of guys are like, well, how can that be sin? I'm not hurting anybody. You're you're hurting God, right? Because you were created in the image of God. And every time we we sin, we are in fact defaming the image of God. And, And that's why down in verse 30, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As a believer, you're in relationship with God. And when you act in a way that's not in accordance with your new nature, when you walk in your old life, you are grieving the Spirit. In the same way, when you, as a married couple, when you act selfishly, you grieve your spouse. You bring sorrow to them. You bring sorrow to God because you're in a relationship with God. We need to also confess our sins to people. We need to take responsibility for our actions when we have sinned against others. If you have sinned against someone, you need to take responsibility an exercise initiative to confess your sin, seek forgiveness. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it's absolutely necessary, though. Absolutely necessary, because when we hide our sins against people, what we're doing is hiding. We're hiding ourselves, and we're trying to protect ourselves. Now, a good confession is, is basically made up of three parts. We confess what we've done, we apologize for what we've done, and we ask forgiveness for what we've done. We say very clearly, this is what I have done. I acted selfishly. I spoke harsh words. I misrepresented you, or I misrepresented myself to you. It's a confession. It's a statement of truth. We're proclaiming the truth to someone that we have either wronged or misled. We then apologize, basically letting them know, I I take responsibility, and I know that my sin has hurt you. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that my sin has hurt you. And then we seek forgiveness. Do you forgive me? Do you release me from the debt of my offense against you? Now, it's up to them at that point whether or not they forgive you. Right? But you've taken responsibility for your actions and taken initiative to to restore relationship. Right? you guys, just a word. When you're apologizing, apologize for what you do, not what they do. You know what I'm talking about? Don't do the whole apology of, well, I'm sorry you were hurt. You know what that implies? My action wasn't really that bad. It was your response that was wrong. But I'm sorry you were hurt, right? Take responsibility for your sin. Don't confess their sin. Confess yours, right? Don't turn your confession into an accusation. Don't use it as a tool of manipulation. I want you to apologize to me. So in my apology, I'm going to make you feel guilty for what you did that caused me to do what I did right? That's not confession. That's manipulation. That is more sin, right? Take ownership for what you've done. Take the initiative to confess what you've done, to apologize, and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation, right? So how much are you supposed to confess? Because we're constantly sinning against people, aren't we, in our thoughts and our actions? Um, I'm going to tell you the bottom line is you need to pray about it. Let God lead you, and what you need to confess. Obviously, if you have directly wronged somebody, lied about them, lied to them, stolen something from them, spoken harsh words to them, abused them in some way, that requires confession to them. If the sin was simply in your mind against them, you need to use discretion on whether or not you, you share that, right? I've had people um, come up and, and confess to me that they had thoughts against me, like they despised me, and I didn't even know about it, and they felt the need to confess it to me, right? Well, now I know that, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm walking around and, and I know that they had these thoughts of, of just like despising me. And, and now I have to work through, I, you know, I didn't need to know that. I didn't. Now, if the spirit told you to tell me then all right, you know, I get it. Maybe, maybe I need to, to have some gospel work done in my heart in, in repenting and and forgiving you as well. But, um, you need to, you know, don't, don't be walking around constantly telling everybody all the evil things that you ever, you know what I'm saying? Like, just pray about it. Use some discretion about what you confess. If, if it's something that was done in action, that needs to be confessed. If it was something you did done in thought, let God lead you, right? Um, now, the second application, the first is that we need to confess to people when we've wronged them. The second is this. We need to make a regular practice of confessing to someone Um, even when we haven't sinned against them. Um, I think this is actually more central to James' point here. When he says that we need to take a regular practice of confessing to one another and praying for one another, this is kind of like the old school accountability group idea that we talk about. It's a sense of, of having a community around you that you're honest with, and you tell them your struggles. You confess to them where you're having difficulty. You open up to them about where you are having difficulty believing the gospel and walking in the truth of the gospel. And then those people come alongside you and they speak the truth to you and they pray for you. And when they confess to you, you speak the truth to them and you pray for them. This is a call to community. Remember, the, the, the power of sin is deception. And deception comes alive in the dark. Deception is incredibly powerful when it's hidden. This is a call to walk in the light. It's a call to, to walk in community, to have people around you who love God and love you and, and that you can trust, right? We're not talking about just walking up to random strangers or people that can't keep a secret or we're talking about developing a close-knit, tight community of people that you love and love you and that are going to walk with you um, and, and help you fight for godliness, right? This is why we do our fight clubs. Um, some of you who are new are like, what, what? <laughs> What is that, right? Um, That is just simply our way of describing, we have triads, groups of three, three men or three women, and it's a group of people that are fighting for God's best in their lives. They are fighting for the gospel to go deep in their hearts, and they're fighting with others for the gospel to go deep in their hearts. It's a tight-knit, intentional community that's designed to ultimately fight to go deep in the gospel. That's the purpose of our Fight Clubs. Okay? If you're not in one, I encourage you to get in one. We try to equip them and, and, and keep them. But, but the whole point is, is ultimately to, to help us um, grow in this area of, of confessing and, and praying for one another. All right, let's admit it, you guys. Um, we hate confession. We really do. If you love confession, you're probably lying or you're really weird. Um, that's just not normal. We hate confession. You know why? Why? Because it feels humiliating, doesn't it? It's humiliating to have to go up to somebody and say to them, I was wrong. I sinned against you, right? Because when you sinned against them, you didn't feel wrong. You felt so right. You were full of pride. You were full of whatever. And you were like, man, that person's an idiot, and they deserve this, and blah, blah, blah. And then the Spirit comes in and goes, bam, and crushes you. And you're like, oh, all right, I got to go confess, right? It feels humiliating to confess You know why you should come to love confession? Because it's humbling. Confession kills our pride. Pride is the dark closet in which we hide our sin. It's what empowers it. It's what protects the little ropes that tie us down and keep us limited in our lives. Confession is turning on the light. Humility is a source of power, right? You guys know, I've said this before. What's the difference between humiliation and humility? Pride. It's really hard to offend a humble person. It's really hard to humiliate a humble person, right? They don't have anything to protect, they don't have any kingdom to build. They know who they are, and they're empowered in the gospel instead of in their own identity, right? So it's an invitation to humility. We need to get quick and proficient at communication, at, at, at confession. The reality is we are, in our sin, arrogant cowards. That's what we are. We are arrogant cowards. We like to think very highly of ourselves, and we like to hide, <laughs> Because we don't want the things that we're hiding to in any way threaten our high opinion of ourselves. We are arrogant cowards by nature. Confession helps free us to the humble confidence of the gospel. Confession frees us to our gospel identity. So we need to believe the truth. We need to get good at at, at preaching the gospel to ourselves and continually pushing ourselves into the gospel truths about who we are in Christ, right? We need to get good at confessing the truth, confessing the truth to our own heart confessing the truth about ourselves, our sin um, to God and to others, right? We need to get good at confessing the truth. And, and biblical repentance begins in the heart and works its way out to its behavior. So we need to get good at walking in the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. We, we need to, to confess the truth of the gospel. We need to walk in the gospel, And that's, in fact, where our passage goes. Our passage calls us to believe the gospel in such a way that it it works its way out progressively in our behavior. We need need to take the next step and actually start living it out, you guys. Not just talking about it, but actually living it out. We need to change our behavior. We need to exercise a little bit of self-discipline some of you are like, Steve, wait a minute. That sounds like legalism, right? That sounds like us changing ourselves. And the whole point of the gospel is we don't change ourselves. God does. And we're supposed to rest in what God has done. And and God changes us, right? I want the gospel to change me. All right. I think we need to call something out. Because some of you have become so gospel-centered in your language and in your thinking that you've become passive in your Christian life. You use all the right language, but you've given yourself an excuse in that language to not discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. And you call discipline legalism. They're very, very different things. See, legalism is about working for acceptance. Legalism is about working so that I can have a high opinion of myself or that God will have a high opinion of me or people will have a high opinion of me. Legalism is me trying to do for God what God has already done for me in Christ. Discipline is not me working for acceptance, it's me working from acceptance. I'm still working. See, discipline is I'm beginning with my identity in the gospel and then I am going through the hard work of actually applying it to my behavior, actually disciplining myself um, to, to walk in the truth. They're both work. It's just one is work for acceptance and work is, one is work from acceptance. One is, is, is my trying to establish my moral record for God. The other is my resting in the moral record God has given me in Christ and then working to see that moral record worked out in the practical reality of my life. We need to work. You guys, we need to be, as Christ followers, disciplining ourselves for godliness. But we need to do it in the right way. Because we're always going to be tempted to slip into legalism where we are attempting to change ourselves to earn the favor of God. And we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves so that we are working from our acceptance to the change. And that's why, you guys, it's really important for us to catch this. Walking the walk, putting into practice, change is not about struggling with sin. It's really not. Struggling with sin is the pathway to losing to sin. Wrestling, right? Like, oh man, I'm really struggling with my sin. Yeah, you're going to lose. <laughs> it's going to pin you down, and it is going to do ugly things to you. Um, sin is incredibly powerful, way more powerful than you. You, you are uh, a, a, a responder, not an initiator, and when sin initiates and you respond by simply struggling with it, you are going to lose and that's why it's not about struggling with sin. victory doesn't come from fighting with sin, it comes from replacing sin right that that's what we talked about we, we we replace our identity, we recognize who we were outside of Christ and we replace that with who God says we are in Christ, right We reject the lie, we embrace the truth. That same principle needs to work out in our behavior where we replace the wrong behavior with the right behavior in light of the truth that drives the behavior. Does that make sense? You can't divorce the two. We replace the wrong behavior with the right behavior in light of the truth that drives the behavior. Now, our little section here at the end here is is a a mini workshop. Paul gives us a mini workshop on how the gospel frees us to right behavior, not only changing our behavior, but the motives behind it. So we're going to kind of walk through this section and take a look at, at the pattern of putting off and putting on. Putting off our old man, putting on the new man. Putting off who we were outside of Christ and putting on who we are in Christ. And then putting off the behavior associated with who we were and putting on the behavior that's associated with who we now are in Christ. So let's take a look at the list. Take a look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. All right. Verse 25 deals with the issue of lying. Put away falsehood put away lying, put away deception, put on an awareness that we are members of one another. Put off deception, put on an awareness that we are members of one another. Let's dig into this a little bit. Why do we lie? Why do we misrepresent our behavior, our motives, um, our record? Why do we put up a front and pretend to be something that we're not? Why? Why? There's going to be a lot of reasons, but they're, they're all closely associated. Usually I has to do with, with I want to impress somebody. I want them to think highly of me. I, I want them to, to speak words to me that affirm who I am. I'm looking to them to, um, just to, to reinforce something about me that I like about myself. I want to avoid shame because shame is associated with things that I don't like to look at. Um, we try to make ourselves look better than we are or not as bad as we are. That's why we lie. That's why when you're in the office and, and the boss walks in and they're like, hey, how are you doing on that report? And you're like, man, it's almost done. You haven't even started it, right? Why do you do that? It's because you're trying to project an image of who you are that you're not really. You're hiding, right? You're hiding. And, and, and really what you're, what you're saying there is, is I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of judgment. I'm afraid of not measuring up. You're putting the other person in the position of judge, Their opinion of me is a final decree of me. So I need them to think highly of me because when they think highly of me, I can think highly of myself. We lie so that they, when we put them in the position of head over us, will think highly of us. And when they think highly of of us, we can think highly of ourselves. And what Paul is saying is they're not the head. They're the body, just like you. They are members of the body, There's one head over the body, and that is Christ. And we are members of the body and members of one another. Your judgment of me does not define me. When I get the gospel, I am free to not care what you think about me. Which sounds really harsh, but it's just reality. Why? Because it only really matters what the head thinks of me. When Christ approves of me, what does it matter if you reject me? When the God of the universe declares me to be his son, what does it matter if you think I don't measure up? Why would I be threatened when you don't think highly of me when he does? Do you see what he's saying? Is, is We need to recognize that the gospel leads us to a different way of looking at ourselves. We need to put on the gospel and then put on the right behavior. We need to put on our security in Christ And when we put on our security in Christ, it drives out the insecurity that leads us to misrepresenting ourselves. The gospel prayer last week, the first prayer was this, nothing I do can make you love me more. Nothing I have done can make you love me less. It's preaching the truth to our hearts. Nothing I do can make you, God, love me more. And nothing I have done, God, will ever make you love me less because I am fully, completely approved and loved In Christ, that gospel prayer, that gospel truth leads to gospel-changed behavior. And when I preach that truth to my heart, I can choose to be honest, even if it hurts. I can choose to be honest, even if it makes me reveal things that feel humiliating, because my confidence, what I'm doing in my behavior is reinforcing my faith. I believe it to be true, and I put it into practice in my life. And you're like, yeah, but Steve, in the moment, it doesn't feel true. In the moment, I really feel like I want to lie because I, I really don't want to go through that experience of, of being humbling. And here's the thing. That's where you need to let the truth lead your behavior and not your emotions. You need to choose to do what is right, even if it doesn't feel right, knowing that it is right. And your behavior will actually strengthen your faith, even as your faith strengthens your behavior. So the gospel tells me that... that I'm fully accepted. I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything and I haven't done anything to make him love me less. Therefore, I am free to be honest. You're not my judge. Even when it's scary, it makes me look bad. Look at verses 26 27 and 31 to 32. 26 and 27, be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Drop down to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as, as God in Christ has forgiven you. All right, now we're dealing with anger. W- what does it look like for us to walk the walk in regard to our anger? All right, for our use here, I'm going to define anger because we all come to the table kind of defining it. When I say anger, we probably all have different images in our mind. When, when I talk about anger, I am talking about the whole range of negative emotions that come when you feel like someone's wronged you or shortchanged you, or defrauded you in some way. It's a whole range of hurt uh, emotions that, that, that come from being wrong. And so this range would go everything from being hurt to being all out, wild, wrathful. Okay? So when I'm talking about anger here, I'm talking about all of the negative emotions that come as a response to when we feel like we've been wronged. Some of you... Um, by your parents or by your churches or by your culture have been taught that anger itself is bad. That anger is wrong. And because of that, you don't give yourself the freedom to admit you have anger. Um, You ever done that? Something goes on, somebody walks up to you and they're like, why are you angry? I'm not angry. No, why are you angry? I'm not angry. No, really, why are you angry? Now I'm angry. Right? You just asked me three times. You know what I'm saying? You were already angry. Let's just be honest. All that happened was you moved farther down the spectrum. You went from hurt to angry. (laughs) Well, you know, we have a difficult with our language and describing it, but you just moved a little bit farther down the spectrum. You know, when someone comes up to you and says, why are you angry? What they're saying is, I sense you have a negative emotional response to something I've said or done. Right? Why, Why are you having this? You guys... Um, I want you to see that anger isn't is normal, and anger is even appropriate in some cases. This verse doesn't say don't be angry, does it? Look at what it says. It's actually a command. Be angry. There are times that it's perfectly appropriate to be angry. That that is in fact the right response. God gets angry. That's not sin. God is provoked by sin. God is provoked by injustice. God is provoked by by when, when His image bearers do not bear His image. And we will be provoked as well. The verse says, be angry, but don't sin. And then it defines that by saying specifically, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but don't nurse it. Be angry, but don't protect your anger. Be angry, but don't let it fester into resentment. Be angry, but don't become self-righteous in your anger. Verse 31 is what comes out when we let our anger fester, bitterness. It, It elevates into wrath and anger and clamor. Slander, when we actually start acting out in abuse toward others. Malice, just a general desire to see other people suffer. That sense that, man, I just take pleasure in your, man, you got what you deserved. When we let anger fester, it produces a whole host of of weeds, spiritual weeds in in our lives, right? Verse 32 says this, put it off. Verse 32, put it off. Instead of of festering in your anger, be kind to one another. Put off the anger, put on kindness. Put on a tender heart. Put on forgiving one another as God did with you. See, our gospel prayer would run like this. The gospel prayer that preaches the gospel to to my heart is this. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. I'm not just going to forgive you because it's a nice idea. I'm not just going to forgive you because it's a a, a high ideal. I'm going to forgive you because I've been forgiven. I'm going to extend you kindness because I have been extended kindness. I am going to be generous with your faults because God has been generous with mine. So the gospel change that comes out of this is that I give forgiveness instead of holding a grudge. I give someone the benefit of the doubt. I give them kindness. I turn to them with a tender heart instead of hardening my heart and holding a deep resentment toward them. I extend kindness instead of exacting revenge. How do we do this? The same way we do anything, you guys. Some of you are struggling with forgiveness and this can be one of the most difficult and painful areas where the grace of God will make advances in your life. But listen to me, the only way it happens, the same way all other change happens. You need to sit in how much you've been forgiven and let it break your heart. You need to see how bad and offensive your sin was to God and how he extended you kindness and love in spite of your sin that your sin was so bad, Christ had to die. But you're so loved, he was glad to do it. You need to sit in your forgiveness until it breaks your heart. And when it breaks your heart, you will find a supernatural power to extend grace to others. The generosity you extend to others is the natural outflow of your realization of the generosity that has been offered to you. It is the behavioral change that grows out of the realization of the truth of the gospel. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So put off stealing, put on generosity what do you steal? Well, you steal stuff, right? It's stuff that you think you need or stuff that you think you want to be happy, right? It, it's, it's me when I was a kid going into the convenience store and not having a dime in my pocket, but seeing a toy on the shelf and going, I, I, I need that for happiness right now, right? And grabbing it and shoving it in my pocket, right? It's me as a teenager um, becoming a shoplifter. It's, it's, but here's the deal. Some of you are like, yeah, dude, that's not my story, <laughs> I don't steal stuff. That's not who I am. Really? You've never stolen anybody's reputation? You've never stolen credit for something that wasn't fully your credit to claim? You've never stolen something that didn't belong to you, someone's name, someone's reputation? See, here's what stealing says. Stealing says, I don't have what I need you do. And I'm entitled to it. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to take that thing. I'm going to take that credit. I'm going to take that that reputation. I'm going to take that name, right? The gospel speaks to that. The gospel prayer that we looked at says this, your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. It's saying to God that you are, in fact, the most satisfying thing in the universe. Your presence and your approval are all I need for everlasting joy. I was created for you, and I find in you everything I need for full satisfaction and joy. So the gospel change that comes out of that is, is I give away what I used to hoard. I stop looking to my things to define me. I stop looking to other people's things to satisfy me. I stop looking to to, um, other people's reputation or their words to define me. I am generous with my things, with my time, and with my reputation because I am secure in who I am in Christ. So overwhelmed with what I've been given that I freely give to others, knowing that God is a God of grace and his giving never ceases. People who get the gospel are generous people. People who get the gospel are generous people. Not because they're trying to meet some standard or earn some name or or measure up. They're generous people because they live in the generosity of God. And they know that the generosity of God knows no limits. It's an ever flowing fountain of grace. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This even extends to the use of our, our crazy tongues. Put away corrupting talk. And put on grace-filled talk. Moralism would come in and define this very simply. We like this. You know, it's kind of like here's the list of bad words. You don't say these things, here's the list of good words. That's how I heard it taught. Uh, when I worked at a Christian school, it was kind of hilarious, right? The kids weren't walking around saying the big bad words. Instead, they had the Christianese bad words, right? Things would go wrong, and they'd yell, stink, or crap, or well, that was actually too much. They couldn't say crap. They got in trouble for that. Uh, but they would they would come up with some Christianized version, right? Um, and one of my favorites was the whole gosh darn it, right? I'm like, who is gosh and what do you want him to darn? What, are, what does that even mean, right? Here's the deal, you guys. We're not talking about creating a list of words. These are the bad words. These are the good words. Avoid these bad words. And, you know, that's not what this is talking about at all. The word is corrupting. We want to avoid. We want to, we want to put away corrupting talk. Talk that rots someone's faith and confidence in Christ, We want to put away words that rot someone's identity, confidence in Christ, that tears them down. Now, this is obvious. These can be words of malice, right? Jesus said, you are are in danger of hellfire if you say to a man, raka, which was Hebrew for fool, right? Which is ironic because the Bible itself calls some people fools. So it must mean that sometimes it's okay to call people a fool, To, in fact, say to them, you're being a fool. That's just honesty. Words of truth spoken in love. And the difference, though, is that there are other kinds of words when you call someone a fool and your intent is to destroy them. Your intent is to tear them down. Your intent is to remove their confidence. Your intent is to grind them into the earth. This is corrupting talk. Words of malice that undermine the work and the presence of the gospel. But you know what? These can also be words of comfort. When that comfort points to the wrong place. When you have somebody who is suffering, and you come alongside them, you know, two gals, and, and the one comes in, she's complaining about her whole day at work, and the other one just wants to comfort her. And she's like, you know what? You're right. Your boss is such a jerk. What an overbearing idiot. She just doesn't understand. You know, you're just trying to bring comfort. That's corrupting talk, because you are, in fact, rotting her ability to trust what she should really be trusting, which is her identity in Christ, So nice words can be corrupting talk too, right? Words of advice, right? When you go all Dr. Phil on somebody and you're telling them, all you need to do is be strong. Just have more confidence in yourself. You need to believe in yourself, right? Those all sound wonderful. Those are the the mantras of our society. That is corrupting talk because it rots our ability to rest and trust in the work of Christ and leads us instead to rest and trust in our own ability. Corrupting talk rots our ability to embrace the gospel. So all that self-help power is within you garbage that that just sounds so positive and so wonderful and so encouraging tears people down because it doesn't point them to the genuine solution, right? Instead, you're supposed to put on words that are good for building up. The word edifying literally means to build up or to strengthen. Instead of rotting your confidence in the gospel, I'm going to build up your confidence in the gospel. I'm going to point you to faith in the gospel. I'm going to point you to the one who can save you, not yourself. I'm going to point you to your confidence in Christ, your identity in Christ. I'm going to point you to, to growing your faith in Christ. I have a friend who is dying from cancer. And even as he is going through the process of dying from cancer, he is growing in the strength of his faith. And it's kind of crazy the stuff people will come in and say to people who are suffering. You got some idiots that will come in and they'll just be like, you know, if you just have enough faith, then you'll be healed. The reason you're sick is, is you don't have enough faith. Where does that put the attention? Where does that put the weight? All on me. If I could just do better, if I could just be stronger, if I could just believe more. It's not your faith that saves you, it's the one that you have faith in that saves you. We should never direct somebody to try to refocus their attention on themselves. That is corrupting talk. We need to direct ourselves to the God of all creation, right? Our confidence is in Him, not our ability to take hold of Him. Some come in and simply minimize the suffering and try and make it sound less. In 100 years, we're all going to be dead. Now, let's just put a little perspective on it. It's all going to burn in the end. That minimizes someone's suffering, and it minimizes the the devastating effect of the fall and someone's personal pain. That is corrupting talk. Some will come in and, and, and try and deflect, you know, God, God's not really in control of this. This isn't the way God works. If he were in control, he wouldn't allow something like this, which is subtly undermining that person's ability to believe both in the goodness of God and in the power of God. That is corrupting talk. We need to put corrupting talk away and put on words that direct people to grow in faith in Christ. The gospel prayer that I encourage you to pray says this, I will measure the compassion of God by the cross and I will measure the power of God by the resurrection. Everything I say should be pointing people to measure the compassion of God by the cross. He loved us enough to send his son to die. Never doubt the love and compassion of God. And we should measure his strength by the ability to raise life from the dead. He can deliver you even now. We should never doubt the strength of the hand of God. Talk that builds up leads our heart to grow in faith, right? So we put on words of grace. That's the change that comes out of it. Words that build up and point people to God's heart to grow in trust and God's power to grow in faith. You guys, repentance comes from believing the gospel, applying it to our own hearts, and then walking out in the reality of a life that is changed by those truths. Which means we need to get serious about walking out the implications of our faith. We need to stop being passive in our faith and simply saying, well, it's good enough if I believe the right things because the reality is, James says, faith without works is dead. We need to recognize that, that our faith has a natural way of growing in our lives. And as we simply put the truth into action, that, that allows us to experience in greater depth the freedom that God has given us. It exposes the ropes that tie us down to an identity that destroys us, a limitation of life that ultimately will enslave us, and it sets us free to become the men and women that God has created us to be.